This podcast is part of our Sunday edition focused on Artsakh, or Garapa, which is a region currently in Azerbaijan inhabited by indigenous Armenians. This episode, I speak to photographer Scout Tufenchen, who traveled to Artsakh in the last days before the handover of some crucial territories after the 44-day war that took place in the fall of 2020. So I have Scout Tufankchen in the studio here in Williamsburg. Hi, Scout. Hi. So people who don't know you may remember that you were the one who came out with probably the most viral photograph of Barack Obama back in 2012, I believe, mm -hmm. which was a photo of uh, Barack Obama and his wife, Michelle, hugging mm -hmm. against the sky. And then other people may also know your book. You were like the first photographer there from day one documenting the, Barack Obama's journey from, you know, a junior senator to the president of the United States. Yeah, I had no idea what I was getting myself into when I started doing that. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about that phase of your career before we start talking about Artsakh and some of the stuff you experienced recently. Yeah, so I've had a very kind of strange, almost bifurcated career in that I started out working mostly in the Middle East covering, covering conflict. And um, 2006, I had covered the Operation Summer Rains War in Gaza, and I was pretty burnt out and ready to kind of come home and... And, and do something less traumatic. And right. uh, so I came home and my photo agency suggested that I go photograph the then junior senator from Illinois who was doing a book tour. And I thought it sounded like the world's most boring thing in the entire universe. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure everyone, everyone has been to a book tour, but trying to make beautiful photographs at a book tour is not easy. And uh, they wanted me to drive up to New Hampshire to do it. I was not interested. I hit a date that weekend. Like, I didn't want to go. Right. But I'm a freelance photographer. And so I, I, I go anywhere that someone offers me money to go, basically. And, uh, and so I drove up there. And when I saw how people reacted to him, you know, New Hampshire is a... Is, it's the first primary. It's a swing state. They're very used to politicians coming up and kind of kissing their ring and so on and so forth. They're not generally that excited about politicians. They're kind of too cool for school. Right. But... When they looked at Barack Obama, they were like, oh, my God, he chews gum. I chew gum, too. I mean, it's just like the look of adoration in their eyes. I mean, his book tour was originally supposed to be in this cute little bookshop, and then it ended up being in the convention center down the, down the street because so many people came. And I thought if he can make, you know, lily white northeastern New Hampshire react this way to him. Pretty conservative. Pretty conservative. Yeah, yeah very live free or die. Um, I think I've met every black person in New Hampshire at this point. Um, <laughs> if he can make people like that react to him this way, then this could be an incredible story. Um, and so I thought, you know, I'll spend a week a month doing it, maybe a weekend here and there. It'll be really chill. I'll get to spend some time with my boyfriend. It'll be relaxing. And what actually happened is I moved to Iowa. I didn't see my boyfriend for like two years. <laughs> um, I became obsessed and Barack Obama became the president of the United States. Um, none of which I thought was going to happen. Um, so you saw that spark early. I did, yeah. And you recognize it. You're like, there's I something did. here, right? Yeah, and I didn't, you know, I mean, there are people who saw his DNC speech and were, were blown away by that, but I was in Gaza for that, so I missed it. I had read a right. New Yorker article, and, and I knew that the DNC speech had made some noise, but I figured, I mean, like everyone else did, I thought, oh, 2016, right. maybe 2020, he's young, there's no rush. But then it became clear that he was someone who was going someplace really quickly. 
So why do you think people react? I mean, well, I'm asking this because you had years of following around, mm-hmm. and you saw the, you know, quote unquote everyday people. Yeah, and I'm a cynical jerk. So right. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, also, you know, I mean, we're talking about a really racist country. Yeah. And we've seen the backlash and yep. other things, but for some reason, that moment mm-hmm. there was like everyone suspended disbelief, right? Exactly. And, and people wanted something to believe in, and I think I think one of the things I noticed about him, and this this maybe sounds. I don't know, it sounds too too ephemeral, but but he's kind of a human Rorschach test in that people right. see in him what they want. Right. Um, and that's kind of always been the case. And and to to a lot of the people that were, were watching or listening to him, they picked up on one little thing. You know, I, I started this project early on where I, I bought a child's chalkboard mm-hmm. and I I would show up a couple of hours early to each event and I would hand the chalkboard to people and ask them to write why they supported Barack Obama. And it was always something different, which I thought was really interesting. Huh. And it was always something very specific. I mean, there was there was a lot of hope change. You know, right. people were really exhausted after the Bush years. They were exhausted about the war, Katrina, just this kind of sense of which seems quite quaint now <laughs> of you know America having kind of lost its way. And people were looking for something kind of young and vibrant that they could believe in. And the Obama family was that to people. So what were some of the things they wrote down? Like, what were the specific things that stuck with you? Yeah, so I, I should look this up and give you some some actual solid answers at some point. But it was everything from, you know, very specific granular things that he promised to do with education right. to, you know, I want a president who looks like me right. to um, end the war to... End the war. Yeah. yeah. How'd that go? Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's one of those things where I feel like people didn't, you know, people like, I don't want to shout out specific people, but but when you listen to someone speak for right. six hours a day, you, you hear the whole speech. And I think that with a lot of politicians, and Obama certainly is not alone in this, people hear the little bits that they like and they don't right. listen to the others. And so when he talked about ending the war in Iraq, the literal next phrase was, and send them to Afghanistan where they belong. (laughs) You know, take the troops out of Iraq, send them to Afghanistan. But that's usually not what we hear on the evening news. But people only would hear half of it. So a lot of the stuff that he did that um, surprised or irritated people, he had said he was going to do in the... In his speeches, it's just that, you know, not everyone has the dubious pleasure of, of listening to six hours of it a day. Though um, I think, I mean, I, I, I will say that I think that happens with most politicians. Even, uh, no, I agree. He's even definitely with, not alone in Even this. with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. I mean, he literally said what he would do mm-hmm. and people didn't want to believe him. 100%. Do you know? So it's like it's often politicians won't just broadcast like yeah. in a coy way, but in a yeah. direct way. And to be less, you know? um, I don't know, maybe cynical about it. There is no one human who is going to no. do everything that you want them to do. And and so the best we can do in a two-party system is we pick the person who's the best aligned with our values. And I think for people for whom Barack Obama aligned with their values, you know, you can you can disagree with what he did or what he didn't do. But I, I think in all cases, he was trying to do what he felt like was the right thing. Mm-hmm. Whether or not, you know, I certainly quibbled with some of it, everyone has things that they they disagree with. But I think at all times he was trying to do what he thought was best for the country. And I think that was one of the things that appealed to people. And then there was the larger stuff where, you know, there were little kids that we talked to, and this this sounds like I'm making it up, but I am 100% not, where just the fact that he looked like them broadened their sense of possibilities. And that alone is huge. Hugely valuable. Absolutely. Hugely invaluable, you know. 
So I just want to mention back in 2012, that photo we mentioned、mm-hmm. had over 4 million likes. It's 562,000 plus shared on Facebook,、mm-hmm. retweeted 794,000 times. I mean, it was pretty epic. And those who are interested in more of Scout's images around Barack Obama, her book is Yes, We Can Barack Obama's History Making Presidential Campaign. Which is a very short title. Which is a very short title, but totally worth it. You really do capture some wonderful images. So now we're going to fast forward to today.、Mm-hmm. You know, and、um, we're going to talk about Artsakh,、mm-hmm. where you were for the last month that the handover was happening.、Mm-hmm. And we'll talk a little bit of context because I know for a lot of people, the issue of Artsakh, Nagorno Karabakh is very confusing because they've never heard these names before.、Exactly. And、um, I also mentioned that another project you had done previously, which I think helps explain a little bit of the context for this, is your book, There Is Only the Earth Images from the Armenian Diaspora Project, which came out in 2015,、mm-hmm. uh, around the 100th anniversary of the Armenian Genocide.、Yep. And it's a photojournalist study of the, of the Armenian diaspora.、Mm-hmm. And you travel all around the world documenting the diaspora. And, you know, and I mean, in the case of Artsakh, it's not really a diaspora because、no. this is their indigenous land. Yes. But It certainly works in terms of this larger project. Do you want to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, so I talk about this a little bit in the introduction. So, when I first started working on that project, my goal was partially kind of self exploration. I am part of the Armenian diaspora, and I had always kind of had questions about. What does that mean on a personal level? What does it mean on a larger level? What does it mean for someone who is Armenian but growing up in Moscow or Kolkata or Paris or you know, Sao Paulo,、uh, Buenos Aires, any of the hundreds and hundreds of places where we have made homes either following the genocide or earlier migrations? And as I started, it, it was purely about the diaspora, but it became clear that our story was so much bigger than that and that Hayastan, Armenia, and Artsakh, it's really impossible to separate. Diaspora from、right. indigenous because so, you know, what, what are these borders? Like, what、right. does it make it, you know, is someone who is from the border of what is now modern day Turkey and, and Armenia, like, they could be、right. from five minutes from each other and one is diaspora and one is not? I mean, it, it just got too complicated.、Right. So it, I eventually included. Turkey, I included Hayastan or Armenia, the Republic of Armenia, and I included Artsakh. Yeah. And I should mention that people in t- Armenians in Turkey often say we are not diaspora. Exactly. Right? We are, we are in our land. Yeah. There was a know, very、so. controversial、uh, visit from the minister of the diaspora to Istanbul,、uh, where the minister was quite kind of. Patronizing to the local community about their names and so on and so forth. And they were like, We didn't leave. <laughs> like, we're not diaspora. Like, totally. Well, so what you're mentioning is that a lot of Armenians in Istanbul and elsewhere in Turkey often adapt more Turkana,、mm-hmm. Turkified names、yep. um, as a way to not stand out and、mm-hmm. to avoid prejudice.、Mm-hmm. So, just to kind of give you a sense. So, I'm also going to bring up that today, today is the anniversary of Hanunt Dink's assassination.、Yes. And I think I'd be amiss not to bring、mm-hmm. that up because we're talking about a topic that is very much in our minds.、Mm-hmm. And somebody I think has probably influenced you in different、Absolutely. ways as much as me.、Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, it, you know, I think, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I, you know, his. Assassination was one of the reasons I started blogging. Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, constantly. It was like to, to figure out what to do with all this information、mm-hmm. and stuff when there's like people around you weren't just sharing it. And I was also one of the last person to interview him. Oh, wow.、Um, before he died, I did, which I did by phone, you know, but it was. So, there's a lot of these. I wonder、mm-hmm. if you want to talk about anything, sort of your own kind of like what it means as a journalist in that region of the world where, you know, this is a constant issue. Because it's not、Absolutely. just in Turkey. Obviously, there's been. Killings in other places, and there's been、uh, 
journalists as journalists, we're mm-hmm. having a hard time right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I do um, I do a lot of consulting for the Committee to Protect Journalists. So on a kind of general level, the issue of press safety, and I've, I've, sadly, I've lost a lot of friends. The issue of, of press safety is one that's enormously huge to me, but obviously this one was, was really different. I mean, this is another one of those cases as an Armenian where, much like the war in Artsakh, it is a heart-shattering event. It is something just consumes you and no one around you has any idea that it's happening. And, and so it's just something that kind of can shake the very foundations of, of where you think you stand. And yet everyone around you is completely oblivious to it. And so it's so alienating unless you are around another person for whom it has also been kind of life-changing and, and world-shaking. Absolutely. And in the case of Hadan Dick, it was kind of interesting for me that a lot of Armenian-Americans have still didn't really know who he was. Right. So when at that time when I was or writing... Or only that, know him as a, as, a, as a victim. That's right. Exactly. And actually didn't really know what he did mm-hmm. and didn't know his... So it was an interesting kind of similar but also distorted, skewed mm-hmm. kind of similar process. So now I'm introducing that to set this up now, which is so... When the war concluded at the beginning of November, the Artsakh War, um, which is in currently is part of Azerbaijan, mm-hmm. according to international law and the and the ceasefire resolution mm-hmm. or ceasefire agreement that yes. was agreed upon in the early November, and at that time it was decided that those uh, formerly occupied territories that were outside of Garapal or Artsakh proper would be returned to Azerbaijani sovereignty. Mm-hmm. At that time, you decided to rush over to Artsakh to document what was going on. Let's talk this through. So what was your first reaction? Tell me a little bit about the process and what you ended up doing. So I spent the whole war trying to decide when I should go over and and should I go over and, and am I doing more good with the things that I was doing here related to it? Would I do more good if I was there? And the ending of the war really galvanized that and I immediately you know I told my husband that I was I was getting a plane ticket and and uh, I immediately flew over as soon as I could I've spent a lot of time in these in these territories I've done a lot of work for the international mine clearance organization the Halo Trust Artsakh is even before the war uh, had the highest mine accident rate in the world and so the issues of, of mines and unexploded ordnance is, is a huge issue, and especially in these territories, partially because because of their uncertain international status, uh, it was very hard to get funds to clear them, but also mm-hmm. just because this is where a lot of the war was fought. And so this is a lot of where the mines were laid. And so I spent a lot of time in these areas with the families that had, had, had moved in there or who were from there, you know, because some of these areas had been primarily Kurdish or Azerbaijani before the war, but some of them were more mixed. And right. and so, you know, people are, you know, from all different places. And so I'd spent a lot of time there. And these were places where the people who lived in them were very important to me. They were people that I had stayed with. They were people who I, you know, I, I met their kids when they were infants there. You know, I, I'd spent a lot of time in these places. And for me, you know, uh, for example, anyone who's followed the war knows that that one of the really horrifying aspects of it were the series of photographs of of war crimes that that were put out on social media on telegram channels on twitter on on all sorts of things throughout the war Mm -hmm. um and has not that has not ended yet and i just remember watching seeing pictures one of them and it was in front of a school that i had spent like a week 
going to classes every day with the kids and things like that. So these were places that were very real to me and they Mm -hmm. were places that I had a real connection to. And so I felt like I needed to go and to, to document as much as I could because part of being Armenian, and and I don't know if I'm going to phrase this correctly, but part of being Armenian is this constant explaining to people that the things that have happened to you have actually happened. Right. And, and you as a people, as a larger people, that, that, you know, the genocide actually happened, that this actually happened, and that people should really care about it. And that's part of what journalism in general is, is, right. is, is especially photojournalism, is this is a thing that actually happened, and it matters to the people who, who are in the picture, and this is their life, and this right. is a thing that really is happening and matters. Right. Um, sometimes it matters only for, you know, the people around, but in general, you know, it's things that are happening to humans, and it matters. And so I felt like it was important to go and to show that the things that were happening and had happened and the people who were living there and their homes and the things that they were doing mattered and were documented. That's so well put because I think there is this, you know, I mean, it's it's interesting when I interviewed Artem Tanoyan Mm -hmm. around the George Floyd protests. You know, and he's a he's a genocide research uh, researcher, and he even said that you know part of his draw to go and document was this idea that like you know people always complain there isn't enough photographic evidence of the Armenian genocide or other, and I think Armenians are often many of us I should say are in this position where we feel like we're constantly documenting mm-hmm. because we don't know what's going to come. Absolutely, do you know? And so there's this constant sort of need to document that we do. For our own community because no one else does it. Exactly. So I, I totally understand that. When was the first time you went to Artsakh? The first time I went to Artsakh, I was living in Armenia. I was living in Yerevan and I was teaching at TUMO. I was teaching photography at TUMO, which is a after to call it an after school program for kids is to undersell it. It is like the world's greatest after school program. It's free. They teach STEM and the arts. Uh, it's really wonderful. And, and it's, it's interactive, very computer based. Exactly. Right. And they, they bring over people who are experts in their field or people like me and (laughs) we teach a course it can be anything from robotics to to um, graphic design to in my case the first time I taught there I was teaching storytelling through photography and I went to Artsakh because there were families of Syrian refugees who were living there and I thought that was really interesting at the time my diaspora project was still pretty heavily focused on the diaspora and so I thought the idea of Syrian Armenians having fled the war in Syria and resettling in the kind of uncertainty of Artsakh was was quite interesting. Um, And so I went and I really, like anyone who goes there, kind of fell in love with the place. Um, And I went back several times, meeting with these families, but then other, other people that I met while I was there. And then in 2016, the Hilo Trust sent me over to go um, twice. I mean, I taught at Tumo and Stepanakert again. So I, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Artsakh. I have a lot of friends there. I kind of have a nice little kind of pocket life there. Got it. So now this time you got there. Mm-hmm. You, you landed in Yerevan because there are no flights to Artsakh. There hasn't been for... Yes. The mid, since the mid-90s because Azerbaijan has, has said they would shoot down planes. Yes, there were lots of jokes right. about that particular... The then um, not very liked Armenian president said that he was going to be on the first flight out of Artsakh. The Azerbaijanis said that they were going to shoot it down. There was lots of, anyway. Jokes about that. Yes. Uh, Yes. So I landed in Armenia. Now, mind you, there's a global pandemic. So Mm -hmm. I immediately took uh, two COVID tests at the airport and Mm -hmm. then went to a friend's place to quarantine, got the results of my COVID tests and went into Artsakh. And 
I went in. So originally, I was going to miss the handover of the Kelbajar region because it was happening as I landed. Right. Um, but it was pushed forward a few days. So I missed... My understanding from people who were there is that the weekend before the original turnover date, places like Dadivank, which is a medieval monastery that is extremely special to a lot of a lot of Armenians. And incredibly beautiful. And incredibly beautiful. And the, the whole region is incredibly beautiful. If you drive in on that road, you're curving around these mountains. There's snow almost all. You drive past Lake Sevan, and then you curve into the mountains, and you're in Artsakh. And, it's, and as you follow the road down, it's like you're going from winter to fall, and then Dadivank. It kind of rises out of the... It's absolutely stunning. Um, and also, just it just means a lot to a lot of people. It's an ancient Armenian monastery. It's an ancient yeah. Armenian monastery, but one that people really have a kind of personal connection to. Right. I mean, not all of them, I think, mean as much to people as Dadivank does. And so it was just, you know, it was mobbed. It was it was the, the, the weekend before. Just completely mobbed with everyone from Hayastan trying their best to say goodbye you know, a lot of the places that were lost during the war, they were lost on the battlefield. And so people didn't have time to say goodbye. Like Shushi, for example, which is another place that's, that's very important both to Armenians and Azerbaijanis. Right. The people who lived in Shushi, many of them left their homes with like a shirt and a toothbrush and they thought right. they'd be back in a couple of weeks because Shushi is, on the, is, is, a, is a mountainous city. It's a fortress city. People didn't think there was any way that Shushi could right. fall. It's right on the top of a hilltop. Exactly. Right. And so... People thought there's no way, you know, there's no way that there's a, a future in which there's no Shushi. So people left with, with nothing. And so they didn't have a chance to say goodbye. The people who lived in the Hadrut region, which was lost on the battlefield, um, they didn't have a chance to say goodbye either. Right. This, because of the delay in the turnover, they had a chance to say goodbye. So a lot was channeled into going to Dadivank. Right. Um, but when I was there, because of the delay, it was actually, there were fewer people. It, was, it wasn't the kind of huge, huge crowds. It was smaller. It was more intimate. It was people mm -hmm. going to get their families baptized by the priest. It was people having a quiet moment, obviously people lighting candles. But, but it was really like a much more kind of tender, quiet, there was less rush. It was more like a bittersweet kind of inversion of what visiting Dadivank is like any other time. And mm -hmm. I found that quite meaningful. For me, and you know, everyone everyone interacts with these these things differently. But for me, the power in the monuments, uh, whether it's a church or a temple or or anything, is not. It's not so much the walls and the the monuments themselves. It's the way that people interact with it. It's right. it's people's feelings. It's people's actions. It's it's people having access to it. How people interact with things is what matters to me more than the things right. itself. And so it was really meaningful to have that that time so i think that's a, you touch on something that i'd love to talk a little bit about is i think people often see these monuments from the outside and don't realize how armenians feel about them mm -hmm. in an intimate way i'm not religious you know i'm an atheist but you know i get it you yeah, know and exactly I, and I don't think you're religious necessarily no. either and you know but it, it's more like they're documents of our history but also like you said the way and and i think um for those who don't know people in Artsakh have this reputation and i've experienced it so i know it to be true where people are much more connected to nature mm -hmm. so when we talk about an indigenous community we really mean that right yeah. like people like they they seem to sing to the trees and they you know they have this like joyous sort of like 
relationship with nature mm -hmm. and so like these monuments are an extension of that mm -hmm. right Absolutely. rather than rather than something like more alien or object and they feel very much a part of the land they don't feel like they've been and I mean, part part of that is the age but also they just they don't feel like they've kind of been plopped down they're uh right. they're, they're as much a part of it as anything else but no absolutely i mean when people talk about where they're from they talk about the pomegranate trees and they talk about right. the the karayok the persimmons and they talk about you know the 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 grapes and 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 it's it's about what grows like what comes out of the land um it's about the land right and and i mean just for people to have context the first ever armenian language school was in artsakh i didn't know that yeah mestro mashtos's first school that is uh, in hadrut wow so you know so it's it's you know it's like this is this is really the storied history of uh you know and i think yeah i mean growing up actually i'd never heard of artsakh really do you know? And it's just, I, I want to sort of mention that for people mm -hmm. because I think between Eastern and Western Armenians, and you're sure that division is kind of fallen by the wayside in the mm -hmm. way that it used to be. But there really was a division, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, like, Artsakh never occurred to me. Well, for a lot of Western Armenians, the whole kind of quote unquote Armenian SSR was kind of this strange other play like for me armenia was syria and right. and and what is now eastern turkey you know right. it was lebanon it was syria it was and it's only been kind of really as an as an adult that my connection to armenia the republic of armenia and artsakh has really grown that's true and i think a lot of people don't realize that mm -hmm. part either so now when you got to dadevank what were people doing like were they crying were they praying? Were they singing? Were they... So they were praying. Um, you know, the, the priest, Der Hovenes, has become kind of a popular... He was interviewed by every journalist who went through. But here he was just kind of standing over in the corner talking to a woman about her family's baptism that he was going to give that day. And in a way that was just like every priest interacting with every family who's having a baptism that I have seen. And, and having having done a book on the Armenian diaspora, I've been to a lot of baptisms. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> and, uh, and so it was really, it, it felt like a frozen moment in time as much as it did a farewell, which for me was really important. It felt like this is, no, this is Dadivank. This is not necessarily goodbye to Dadivank. This is Dadivank. There were soldiers who were saying goodbye. There were some people who were weeping. There were a lot of people taking pictures, but also it's, you know, 2020. So. And for people who may not know, I mean, Dadevank is literally just like, what is it, a mile or a kilometer or two from the border of Artsakh? Unclear. Yeah, I yeah, mean, because unclear, the, right. the um, yes, it's roughly a kilometer from the border. It might be in the border. It depends on what map you're looking at. Right. So this is also the part of the, the evolving realities of that is the borders are now being drawn in a way that they were never drawn before. And sometimes they're changing nightly. So, right. so on a realistic level, the only border that matters and the only map that matters is the one that the Russian peacekeepers are using right. and they are kind of posting a new version every sometimes every night sometimes every couple of days and it changes and so for people who are living near this border sometimes their houses are changing from one country to another overnight and it's just this it's like people are living on this shifting sand where they don't know right where which country they're in whether they can go home and there's um, panic around it. I mean, around Kapan, mm -hmm. a lot of the, in southern Armenia proper, not Absolutely. even in Ar Which Arsa. to me is yeah. insane. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, the reality was before the wars in the 90s, I mean, these were part of one country, right? Mm -hmm. So nobody had to worry about yeah. the precision of these well, borders. Exactly. And, the, you know, there's a lot of rumors as to how 
Khorobar Artsakha put into Azerbaijan versus Armenia, but I think the most realistic explanation, no one knows the real answer, but the most realistic explanation is that they didn't think these were ever going to be international borders. They thought, you know, this is the USSR, you know, this is the great Soviet experiment, we, it's we, going to work. We freed all these people, <laughs> yeah, they're all living it's, under us. It's all yeah. going to be irrelevant. So right. no one thought these would end up being international borders. They certainly didn't think that there would be a bunch of, you know, 27-year-old 20, Russian soldiers looking at Google Maps trying to figure out. Is that what, what it felt like? A little bit, yeah. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's... The thing that people say to you the most is, is chikidem or chikidenk. You know, we don't know. We don't know. We, we don't know. know. I don't know. We don't know. Uh, people don't know what, what they're going to do, what decisions they're going to make for their families. Is it safe to be where they are? You know, one day, the, the first full day we were in Stepanakert, which is the capital of, uh, of Artsakh, um, this dense fog rolled in and so dense that you, you literally could not see the side of the street. You could not tell where you were walking. You could not see the buildings around you. Um, and that's kind of what it felt like. And the day we left, we drove out through what is called the Lachin Pass, which is now the only road in and out of Artsakh. And it is it goes through now what is now Azerbaijani territory, and it's guarded by Russian peacekeepers. And it, it goes past the road to Shushi, which is now Azerbaijani territory. And when we drove out, there was such a dense fog, you could see nothing. And it felt like not only was Shushi no longer part of Gharava, it, it was no longer part of the world. It felt like the bits that had been turned over had been turned over into a different world. And, you know, it, it sounds like fantasy, but this is what it felt like to be there. It felt like this incredible fog where you do not know where you're going, where you are, what you're standing on. Nothing has been decided. Everything changes all the time. At the time, there was only internet at one hotel. And so everyone would stand outside and you get a little bit, maybe able to send a WhatsApp <laughs> message or something like that. But you certainly didn't know anything that was happening outside of the tiny area where right. you could see. Um, and so it was all rumors, people talking to each other, right. trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, Panic? No. But um, some fear, I'm sure. Fear, dread, but no, I, there wasn't a lot of panic. I, I think maybe just the people who had decided to come back had decided to come back. And I mean, look, there are, there are you know, every day there were new families coming back. Every day there were more kids' clothes on the laundry lines. Right. Um, you know, schools were open. So, so who people may not know, 75,000 people left Artsakh right. during the war mm -hmm. to seek safety, mostly in the Republic of Armenia. Absolutely. You know, so, so when, the, when the ceasefire was announced, at least 25,000 people, if not a little bit more, have returned exactly. from that 75,000. Yeah. So. They said, I think 25,000 had gotten there by the time I left. Okay, got it. Um, and yeah, the war itself, there were no safe zones. There was a short four-day war in 2016, but the war was mostly fought in the outskirts and in, in, in kind of on the battlefield. Whereas right. in this case, uh, the cities were shelled. And, right. and you can t you, you walk around Stepanakert and you see the scars of cluster munitions. And you see the last, the last day I was there, I spent a few hours watching guys from the Halo Trust try to remove a cluster munition from someone's attic. Wow. And this is, you'd walk up, this is a huge apartment built complex. There's a playground in the middle. The apartment right below the cluster munition had a bunch of kids' bikes piled up front. So this is, you know, families. Yeah. And there's cluster munitions in the attic. So, so how do you know if it's safe to come home to this if there are literally cluster munitions in the attic, in the trees? Yeah. Um, there are, you know, I spent a lot of time in a village called Aistan, which is right outside of Stepanagert. And 
it's right near a giant munitions storehouse that was hit very early in the war. And so people made the difficult decision, or the not difficult, you know, they made the decision to go home, to go back to Agistan after the war. And they returned, and there are Grad rockets and warheads and fuses and bullets, and they're all over the yard. I mean, we, we met this wonderful teacher, and the school had been destroyed, and she's got a Grad rocket in her hen house. Wow. And how do you how do you how do you deal with that like how do you keep your kids safe so how do you deal with it i mean at this point you're a veteran you know war photojournalist so i want you to put your photojournalist hat on mm -hmm. i mean i think we can call you a veteran having covered you know war in gaza in and in syria mm -hmm. and uh, incidents in lebanon you went to haiti after the earthquake and there have been a number of things you've covered how different was the situation um well, so it's different in that there's a few things that make it make it different on a kind of practical level, but but on a personal level, you know, Gaza was a Gaza is a place that I care very deeply about, and I have a lot of friends there, and so and and but it this was a place I've always known Gaza as a place that has been under attack, right? Whereas for Artsakh, it really felt like a place that I loved had been shattered by the war mm -hmm. and the people that i know and the you know on a on a deeply personal uh, like to get really personal um the last two times i was on art i was pregnant with my son like we named him there you know we'd always talked about i have friends who who i promised you know that that we would bring him back and and they no longer they can no longer live there because their homes have been they're they're displaced permanently and so that was was quite difficult. Right. I think because it's always important for me to get people's stories right and to be respectful and to not be taking things from people when I am when I'm photographing them. To not to not be like to have it not be a a relationship in which I'm taking something from them. It is important right. to me that it's either collaborative or I am I'm I'm helping in some way or you know that I'm not I'm not causing harm. And I think in this particular situation, I don't know, was it more so because they're my people? Right. I don't know. It's really hard for me to put that kind of answer into words. I think it was very telling when you said, like, you know, it's, it's, it's different when you're first brought to a place with a certain thing. Because mm -hmm. I, I, the, the only time I've been there was actually through work. Mm -hmm. I was working in an Armenian organization, and I showed up. And, you know, just to sort of echo your point earlier... I felt like I'd probably been to the most remote place in the world. Yeah. Do you know? Even mm -hmm. because there are no planes, mm -hmm. it's very lush, there's no real industry, so there's no pollution. Mm -hmm. Do you know? And it's Absolutely. like all these things that like, you know, you realize, and there was no, you know, something as simple as like a internet connection. Yep. Um, no phone service, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> at least back in there. I went there over 15 years ago. But... I could see how, like, shifting from that to, like, being a war zone mm -hmm. is very different. Yeah, you know? and, and, you know, I, th I think part of it is age, too. It's, this is the first war where my students, so when I talked about teaching at Tumo the first time right. I went to Kharabah from Armenia and, and teaching at Tumo, Stepanakert in Artsakh, like, my students were on the front lines. Right. You know, this is not just my peers. These right. are the kids that I taught when they were 12. My friends, my coworkers... We're on the front lines. So for me, like just my pre-existing relationships, my the people that I really cared about were the ones who were at risk. Yep. You know, my friends who were trying to build families. You know, they uh, 
the father is at war, the mother is is trying to work and try and decide mm -hmm. whether or not to stay or how not to. And and the other thing is how cyclical this all is, right? Yep. Because the people who are fighting who are fighting in this war were children during the first war, the younger ones, um, yeah. or weren't born. Weren't born yet, right? And that's another real tragedy. Um, my friend and I were talking about. You know, this was the first real generation in Armenia and Artsakh without any sort of major trauma. You know, the, the they 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 were born right. after the earthquake. They were born after the the fall of the Soviet the Union. The 1989 earthquake in Gumri, which was a, a earthquake that killed tens of thousands of people exactly. in, the, in the final years of the yeah. Soviet Union. The final years of the Soviet Union and the and the early days of the Armenian Republic were were quite dark in in many cases, literally, between the war in Nagorno-Karabakh, the first Karabakh war, and the earthquake. And the the general kind of economic instability of following the Soviet Union, they were incredibly dark years. And and the kids, who are the young soldiers in this war, they didn't know that. I mean, Armenia is still a poor country. Artsakh is still very poor. But but there weren't the same kind of national traumas in the way that previous generations had dealt with. And so it felt like this kind of generation could kind of, you know, it was a little lighter. Different. It was like right. yeah, it was they didn't have as much weight. Until and, now. Yeah. And I think one of the people, the things people don't realize is how poor the area is. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is not a wealthy area. Yeah. You know, people sort of have this idealized image, but most people are quite poor, particularly yeah. in the countryside. I just, I, you know, my friend and I were talking and, and, you know, any article about how there has been a lack of upkeep of right. especially some of the the regions that were turned over that does not discuss the poverty in the it's area amazing, right? is is it's malpractice you know well, this I is mean, a it's, very poor area yeah. well it's on purpose let's be honest yeah. it's it's very much on purpose this is something that often happens when richer countries you know beat poor countries mm -hmm. they turn to these sort of so-called lifestyle kind yeah. of like why didn't you keep up these houses and these th and you're like no. this is a poor region right there's no money like right. people can't even afford to send their kids to school right. it's like sometimes. why why don't the the old houses have roofs anymore and it's like well because they took them and they used them <laughs> well you know another interesting thing that i heard because you know there was a lot of talk about burning houses and i heard that there's a myth in the region that if you burn a house people will not live in it again I heard that too, and and I've I've experienced that in towns that had been pre previously had had a large Azerbaijani population, people would not live in the houses. That Azerbaijanis formerly lived yeah. in. Yeah, either some people said it was bad luck, some people said they were haunted. So there are these kind of. So I just want to say that for the images people have seen, because there was a lot of ado mm -hmm. about that, and it's like, no, this is actually a regional mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, that sort of like thing. So now let's talk about how safe you felt, and what was the relationship like? You talk about that reciprocity a little bit with like your subjects, right? You want mm -hmm. to go in and take images. I mean, you're a photographer. Mm -hmm. There is unfortunately a history of journalism and photojournalism specifically of sort of like, you know, taking their subjects right. and sort of like using them as props. Yeah, or, or the stories. whole, you know, it is, it's a risk it's, of sounding wildly immature makes me want to vomit phrase about I'm giving people a voice. And it's right. like they have a voice. Right, 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 right. Yeah. As opposed to augmenting someone's voice. Or, yeah, you know, or giving exactly. someone a larger platform or right. giving them exactly. access to a larger platform. I mean, there's a million different ways you can talk about it, but this idea that like, we kind of go in there like heroes and, and do whatever. Um. So how do you do that? Because, you know, it's like, I think a lot of, and I think this would also be useful for photographers, mm -hmm. particularly students mm -hmm. who are trying to figure this out because the media right now is not, is being beat up a lot. Yeah. And somewhat, 
justifiably, because the media also does a lot of terrible things. Yeah. I mean, one just has to see how recently the New York Times has been covering some of the insurgents as if they were like, you know, yeah. you know, just lost souls that for, forgot just, their way to Walmart. If you just understood them. Right. Exactly. Okay. My favorite was the Olympic, uh, the Olympic athlete. Uh, I don't yeah. know if you saw that I mean, story, I yet. but I was just like. I think he knows what he's doing. You know, I think we're yeah. fair to say that. But anyway, I mean, so how do you navigate this? So for me, some of it is taking time, working slowly, um, not being pushy, talking to people. For me, I do this job because I care about people. I'm interested in people. I'm curious. But mostly I like people. Mm-hmm. Not everyone, obviously. But uh, <laughs> but as it, you know. That's, that feels like a shortcoming. It does Just a little kidding. sometimes. <laughs> I don't know. You eat really well if you like people. <laughs> And so some of it is is just kind of being careful and being polite and being respectful and, and and understanding the unspoken no, too. You know, sometimes people will say yes, but they actually mean no. And so give people a little bit of time to kind of figure out whether or not they want you around. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it is just about, for me, you know, talking to people and, and giving them as much of myself as they, you know, being being kind of a, not a fly on the wall, but part of the conversation, not in the sense of directing anything that's happening, but but not kind of going in there and expecting not to give anything of myself. Um, so partly, when I was working there this time specifically, uh, I was I was I was doing a few different things. But one of the things I was doing is I was working with the Halo Trust, and the Halo Trust employs local people to clear uh, mines and other unexploded ordnance from the area. It's something that if there is going to be an Armenian Artsakh has has to happen. You know, if, if people have to be safe. People need jobs. People, kids need to be able to go to school. People need to be able to travel down roads. Uh, mm-hmm. People need to be able to plow their fields and plant their fields. And all of these things are connected to whether or not they a have jobs and b there are not you know warheads in their backyard um, or fuses or cluster munitions. Right. Um, and so part of what I was doing was working with them. And on those times, you really, it, it felt like I was, I was doing something that was helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm working for an organization that is going to help. And my pictures will help raise money. Great. And that's a very kind of concrete, it's helpful motiv- thing to helps do. Helps motivate you. Yeah, absolutely. When you see the real need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that for me is important too. And people, you know, I I have a lot of respect for people and most people kind of get it, you know, like when you talk to them, like they get it. They, they, um, even in, you know, small farms with no internet access, like they, they, they understand, Uh, you know, I don't, I don't talk down to people like they understand. Um, So what's the perspective you bring in by which I mean, and I'm saying this just like as a photographer's eye a little, Mm -hmm. because I notice when you shoot children, you tend to shoot them on their level. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you know? And I think it's really, it really does make the images sort of glow in a certain way because you're in like eye, eye level with the children, you know, but I'm curious when you think about that, like, mm-hmm. you know, because you're often, you often like uh, different perspectives where there's sort of like, you know, the foreground mm-hmm. sort of like helps you frame the background. And so what are you thinking through? So I, I don't know if I do it as concretely anymore, but I, I, I do. When I look at my pictures, I, I notice that I, I like to place someone in in a place Mm -hmm. like I I want you to be able to see where they are and what's around them and and where they live and how they live and and what kind of what kind of life they're living but at the same time I try to meet people where where they are and not uh, not not put my own stamp on it in Mm -hmm. a way some of it some of it is just following curiosity but but most of it for me is is about seeing where someone is and trying to kind of do a do a portrait of of their lives so not just them but kind of as much of their life as you can fit in a frame. 
And a lot of that comes from, from talking to them and, and spending a lot of time with them and, and having, having moments. So as a camera nerd moment, do you mind sharing what you shoot with? So I shoot with two different cameras. Um, and this I actually have put a lot of thought into. I shoot with a, with, a, uh, with a Nikon and with a bunch of kind of prime lenses that open quite wide and allow me to kind of point at what I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. So I show the viewer exactly what I'm interested in. I started using these a lot during the Obama campaign because if you, if you don't shoot at something like 1.4, mm -hmm. there's definitely going to be someone picking their nose in the back of your picture <laughs> if it's a big enough crowd. You know, if you don't show someone exactly what you're looking at, they're definitely going to be looking at like someone you know, cleaning their ear or something right, like that. Right, or checking their phone. Exactly, 100% checking their phone. And so I do that in some ways, and it, and it gives it a kind of, it, it allows me to point at exactly what I, what I want someone to pay attention to. I also photograph with a, with a Leica. Um, I have the new M10, which I love. And the thing that I really love about the Leica, and I started shooting with Leicas when I, I started working on the Diaspora Project, is because I would show up at people's houses. And if you're photographing people who are used to being photographed, the big camera is fine. Right. You know, if you're photographing Barack Obama or you're at a protest or you're, you're somewhere... And which where, Nikon is it? Oh, I shoot with a Nikon D810. D810. Yeah, because uh, it's quiet. So I would show up, but if you're doing a story about kind of ordinary people or, or, or people who aren't in the public sphere, I found that when I was photographing Armenian families, they would say, oh, we're so excited that you've come to, say, Sao Paulo to photograph the Armenian community yep. here. But then when you get out the camera, they'd be like, oh, not us. We're not, you know, to be photographed or we're not, you know, exemplary of the community. And it just puts this huge wall between you and the subject. Whereas the Leica is small, it's quiet. You can be still part of the conversation in a way that you can't with um, this giant SLR blocking your view. And so I use that a lot when I'm photographing in people's homes because it's less of a, um, it's less of a barrier between you and the people you're photographing. Got it. So now, where are some of the other sites you went to in Artsakh to photograph, or what, what were you sort of seeing? I mean... So we spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time in people's homes and, mm -hmm. and going to people's homes. For me, the sites of Dadivank, you know, are important, but so are the pomegranate trees in people's backyards and the karlyok and the... And this, the house that people have, you know, people have built. And, and so I spent a lot of time um, in the main cities, Martakert, Martuni, Stepanakert, but also in Garmirshuka, which is, was some of the, the site of some of the, har uh, the fiercest fighting during the war. Uh, Garmirshuka uh, means a red market. Exactly. It was an old know. communist market yeah. uh, back in communist time. They call it Krasny Bazar sometimes too, which means the same thing. And right now it's right on, right on the edge to the point where you can see the different the different sides. You can mm -hmm. see the Armenian army, you can see the Azerbaijani army. You know, when we were there, the mayor, we were, we were talking about how we were going to visit this family that we had seen. We met this family who were returning IDPs. Mm -hmm. um, and we met them in, in Stepanagert. Internally displaced people. Yeah. Right. And we met them in Stepanagert. It was a family, it was a mom and six kids. And we met them in Stepanagert and they were trying to get a taxi to take them to, to, to Garmishuka. And so we decided that we, ha first of all, we had to go there because we had no idea what kind of situation Garmishuka was in and there's all sorts of kind of new cluster munitions and things like that and we didn't want the kids to die yeah, <laughs> so we wanted to make sure that the kids knew what to be aware of so we brought all this material from from the, the halo trust had produced of the new cluster munitions and things like that so we could show them but also we just wanted to see how they were what they yeah, were doing um sure. the mother when we met her in Stepanakert, she was in a bit of a panic because 
you know, there's no shops open. Mm-hmm. There's no electricity at the time in Karmyoshuka. You know, where, where is she going to, she's a baby. Well, you know, where is she going to get formula? Where is she going to get food? So we just wanted, we wanted to make sure they were okay. And so we went and we, we met actually two families with six kids each. Um, and we met the mayor, who's about 26 years old, super lovely, working really, really hard. He said, food, he, you know, he said, food isn't the issue. Food is easy. We can solve food. The permanent issues are, are what's the real issue. Um, you know, right. can people stay? Is it safe? And Status. I, yeah. Exactly. And, and as he's talking to us, you could hear gunfire. Um, and uh, there were two shots fired. And uh, the people I was with were like, oh, what's that? And he said, oh, they're probably probably hunting. And then... There was some machine gun fire, and he was like, "Okay, they're probably not hunting." <laughs> and, and, and that's the and, life they have. And right? yeah, and he said, "You know, no. it's funny, but at the same time, you know, how can families no. feel safe here if this is what they're hearing?" You know, as right. we were going planning our visit to the family, you know, the the mayor's dad came in. and He goes, "Oh, they can't go down that road. That road's not safe now. So we right. have to go down another road." And so. I've worked in a lot of places where you have to decide which road, you know, last minute, which road is safer than the other road. And I, I did not expect, you know, tiny Garmyoshuka to be one of those places. Right, right. Um, I drove through Garmyoshuka every day for two weeks on my way to work uh, yep. in 2016. So you had that connection. Too. Yeah. So it felt very strange to see. I mean, I remember we drove by a cardboard sign that said uh, hospital in Armenian on it with an arrow because after they lost Hadrut where the hospital was they had to move people to uh, the kind of they call it the rescue service it's basically the cross between it's the fire department and the EMTs Mm -hmm. they do all the emergency response stuff for uh, for Artsakh and they had to move it to the rescue services headquarters instead of an actual hospital unbelievable it's all it's all so so what is the status of people there now i mean they were talking about perhaps getting russian passports they were talking about a lot of things people don't know what to do because obviously there has been a history of azerbaijan you know uh, not treating its armenian citizens Mm -hmm. um in any way except really badly Mm -hmm. so what did you hear i heard i heard i heard a million i know nothing and i've heard everything okay like all things in the situation where there there there's no kind of real top down answers being given to anyone, rumors are flying everywhere. So they right. they're hearing everything from everyone's going to get Russian citizenship, to you know some parts are going to be returned to the Armenians of Artsakh, to the Russians are leaving in five years, and we right. you know so no, no one, one knows, knows no anything. One knows. No one and knows anyone anything. who says they do is lying to you. Yeah, or is is lying to themselves. Right. You know, I mean, That's people true. people hear things from from relatively high sources. So there's, you know, there're rumors, but they're some of them are quite high level. I I think the answer is just that no one no one knows. Right, because it hasn't been decided. Mm-hmm. So now, tell me a little bit about what you want to do with these images. Like, I mean, you know, you captured these really incredible images. I mean, this is a handover, um, a situation where, you know, People may never return to some of these places. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's a po- that's a real possibility. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a big burden. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, I haven't. I, I don't know if I have a real answer for that. Um, part of part of it, of course, as a, as a as an Armenian or as a photographer, as a photojournalist, all of these things kind of meld together in my brain. Is some of it is just about kind of shouting, "This is this is happening. This is mm-hmm. these are these are this is this is real." And then, obviously, long term, I've been working on a story about Artsakh for a long time. 
obviously it's changed and obviously you know any story i'm working on is so small compared to what's actually happening in Artsakh for the people there i i guess my answer is i, I don't have any real solid answers i just knew mm. that it was important if i didn't go and document it it, it would, would not have been right <laughs> That that's, I needed to... Yeah, that's what artists do sometimes. Yeah, I just knew I needed to be there. I was having a WhatsApp conversation with a friend in, in who was there, and I said, you know, someone needs to go and do this. I'll need to go do that. I, I can go I can go do it. I bought a ticket. <laughs> it's like literally the three, t- the three texts. <laughs> it's like someone needs to be there. I could go. I'm going. <laughs> so now people know how easy it is to get you to go somewhere. Maybe. Oh, it's super easy. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I, yeah, the first time someone asked me for for a job if I would go to Arsoc, this was back in, in 2016, I was like, sure. And they, they kept going with the sale. And I was like, I said yes. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> they kept going. I was like, I, I, can, I, said, yeah, I said yes, exactly. Keep going. Yeah. So is there anything else about that experience you wanted to share? I mean, I guess I, I, I'd love to for you to sort of share a little bit of that you know, just kind of like what you were seeing in terms of, because you're going there as a person, but mm-hmm. you're also going there as a photographer, mm-hmm. right? You know, and you're trying to, you're making decisions like where right. to go, what mm-hmm. to document. You have limited time. Mm-hmm. I mean, in this case, you have a very strict timeline. Yep. And access to places is complicated, not, just, right. be, not just because. And figuring out which is the road and mm-hmm. having those connections to ensure your safety. Exactly. I mean, you're in a very unsafe situation, mm-hmm. right? I guess the question is, like, in terms of if you think there are any anecdotes or anything that you'd like to share just to kind of encapsulate a little bit about this experience. You know, talking about whether it's seeing a family that had to say no to something for the last time or just dealing with the fact that so many people around you, almost everyone around you, lost a family member Mm -hmm. or a dear friend to a war that claimed thousands and thousands of lives. It's so hard to... It's so hard to wrap your head around the enormity of of what the situation there is like now. Even calling it the situation is right. so kind of putting it at a remove. You know, if you call something the situation, which I do all the time about the things that I photograph, you're saying it. You're you're pushing it aside. You're not. You're saying it's not people's lives. It's not every person that I met who lost someone. I mean. When I was talking about the war to people in America, when I was trying to explain what it was like as an Armenian, what I said was, you know, at first we'd start with, well, you know, in the 90s, you know, in the Soviet times, blah, 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 and you give the full explanation and background of the conflict. But then I finally just started leading with, look, every single time I get on social media, someone else I know has a dead brother or their cousin is missing or one of my students has been killed or, you know, it is... It is all-encompassing. And and strangely, being there, it felt... <sighs> well, I think we're getting... What we're getting yeah. at maybe is like... I think there there's an old joke about... Um, is it about Lebanon? It's like if you've lived in Lebanon for a week, you can write an article. If you've lived there for a month, you can write a book. But yes. if you live there for a year, you give up on the book and anything else. Yeah, exactly. And, and, it's, just... and it's partly because... Uh, maybe this is to echo your... The relationship you're talking about, which is when you get to have a deeper relationship mm-hmm. with a place, it's hard to encapsulate it. It is. And I'm, I'm having a hard time talking about the enormity of, of it and, and, and what it was, what every single one of my friends is dealing with and has dealt with. And, you know, it's easy for me to sit here in Williamsburg and talk about how uncertain it is for people and how difficult these decisions that they have to make are. 
But I, you know, my four-year-old child is growing up in New York. My friend's four-year-old child is living in Stepanakert, and she has to decide whether or not she can continue to live there, whether or not her work will continue to be safe, whether or not she grew up in the war. She, she's, a, um, she's a refugee from the first war. Mm-hmm. And so does she want her child to feel that same experience, or is it better to go now when she has the choice? Right. You know, is... People who have buried brothers or sons or, or fathers, you know, it was so, everyone we talked to, they said, you know, my, my brother was killed and his, he has a three-year-old son and our father was killed when I was three. And so someone was saying, you know, it's about inherited trauma, but in, in Artsakh, you don't get to inherit the trauma because you get your own. Right, um, right, right. And so the just the enormity of it is so hard for me to put into words. I mean, obviously, I'm a photographer because I, I, I'm not good at putting things into words as part of it. But um, and so that's the hard the hard part of and hard. I don't mean emotionally. I mean the actual like logistic the, yeah, the, the difficult difficult, very difficult yeah. to to capture how life changing this is and how how life shattering this is for people, especially because you know. People in Artsakh are pretty tough. Yeah. Well, I also think it's perhaps a symptom of contemporary life. Mm-hmm. It's hard to encapsulate into visuals. Yes. What is so complicated mm-hmm. and is not always visual. Because, you know, it, it sort of reminds me of when the, those waves of Syrian refugees were coming to Turkey and Greece. And everyone, were, you know, the, the most snide and like awful comments were like, well, they have smartphones. They can't be poor. It's so you revolting. Know? Yeah. But it's like, but you're understand, you don't understand that like for in certain parts of the world, that's their lifeline. Right. And that's literally like having a car or something and it's like you don't say well that person has a car there's like no way they can be poor I mean it's possible to both have those things so I think often part of the issue with a place like Artsakh is you look at these images and they look kind of idyllic sometimes Mm -hmm. and you don't understand what's wrong and you're like well you don't realize these people are extremely poor Mm -hmm. their lives they don't have the same opportunities Mm -hmm. we have they're limited structurally by this sort of you know governmental system Mm -hmm. that oppresses them right on at at every point and it's you're not always like clear so it's also hard to encapsulate that yeah and it's it's really important to me like I said, to meet people where they are. Right. And so people don't think of themselves that way very right. often. Right. And, and people, people are people. Look, you know, we went to, the, the last day I was there, uh, we went to the National Burn Center in Yerevan. Mm-hmm. And we met with a bunch of the soldiers, the young soldiers, right. who they had been severely burned. And, and doctors highly suspect um, that phosphorus, white phosphorus, was involved. So people who don't know, in the last uh, week or so of the war in Artsakh, there were images of white phosphorus reputedly being um, rained down Mm -hmm. on Artsakh by uh, Azerbaijani or Turkish forces. It's sort of unclear what exactly happened. Um, But the images were sort of strangely beautiful and really repulsive because they literally burned not just patches of forest, but the soldiers and the inhabitants in those patches. Now, I'm obviously not a medical expert, but and and the doctor, the head doctor there talked to us and she said, look, I'm not an expert on phosphorus. Like, I'm not a chemist. But these are all the signs of phosphorus and this is what we're seeing in the soldiers. and phosphorus, for many people who do not know, is considered a chemical weapon. Yeah, and it's and incredible. It's, yeah. and, and, and I've seen it before, and, and in, in all cases, 
it's just, it's incredibly barbarously cruel. And the burns have a hard time healing. Uh, in some cases, you actually have to cut the burn out because it won't stop burning. Oh. Um, and, and so some of these, these young men, some of them are like 18, yeah. were living just, you know, what would be a nightmare. I could, you know, we, we talked to one of the dads and he said, you know, when they brought him in, I was praying it wasn't him. All I could recognize, and I could only recognize him from a birthmark on his foot. Oh. Um, and so I can't even imagine what it is like for these parents. But at the same time, like, these are 19-year-old guys, 18, 19-year-old guys. So they're, like, giving each other shit in the hospital. Like, the ones that are healthy enough right. are giving each other shit in the hospital. Like, they're teasing each other. They're making jokes. And so because it's important to me to photograph people where they are and to not kind of look down on them or to try and, you know, a lot of the pictures I have inside the burn unit are, like, guys teasing each other. Because they're still they're still living. People are like that, you know. People sure. can find a life anywhere. They can build a life anywhere. Whether it's the burn center, whether it's Haiti after the earthquake, whether it's in a village in Artsakh where you hear you know the gun battles every night still, or or you hear gunfire. Gun battles is a wild exaggeration, but um, you know, there's still you know brothers and sisters are still teasing each other. Parents are still kind of trying to make it work. Absolutely. Um, there's always the naughty kid who's like causing all sorts of trouble. They're the ones you really have to teach about the cluster munitions because boy, are they going to get in trouble. Well, this is great scout. So I'm going to end with one other question. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of an aside, Okay. but uh, I just think it's sort of interesting thing. I'd love to get your take on uh, years ago. When Vikan and I were in the Armenian Gay and Lesbian Group here in mm -hmm. New York, and we took a photo, you took our photo as part of the march. I did. As part of our group. That photo has had another life okay. on the online <laughs> of this gay and lesbian group near Armenians in New York. Uh-huh. In terms of with some Azerbaijani propaganda and anti-homophobia, anti trying to paint Armenians as all LGBTQ and all these types of things. I'm curious what it was like. I mean, I could explain, like, you know, mm -hmm. having our image appear in videos on YouTube and on web pages and on Internet and sort of like skewed and sort of thing. I'm just curious, like, what does it happen as a photographer when you see your images being mm -hmm. taken this way and sort of manipulated and used for propaganda? Does it make you what does it make you wonder about the lives of these images? <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. So I, I wasn't. I had heard something about about this uh, recently, but I, I hadn't. I hadn't known kind of all of the dirty details, as it were. And I obviously, you know, if the Armenian community becomes all LGBTQ, okay, it's <laughs> fine. Um, People should know Scout has always been super supportive of LGBTQ community. Um, so, but uh, it's just. I try to be really, so I, I now try to be very careful about what I put out there. And I try to be really careful about how I caption it and, and, and what the image itself contains. Because really, at the end of the day, I mean, I can't control when people Photoshop stuff. There's like, if people yeah. take an image and Photoshop something on it, I can't, I can't control that. But right. I can control what is in my frame. And so I try to make sure the pictures that I put out are, if they're, if they're ambiguous, I want them to be ambiguous. Right. If they're... If they're clear, I want them to be clear. I try to make sure that they're telling the story that was, the, the at least as I saw it, the truth. Mm -hmm. um, and, as, and as full a truth as possible. Um, obviously, I take pictures in which this is not the case, but I try to make sure the ones that go out into the wild, as it were, are as complete a story as possible. Right. Um, because I know there isn't any way to control it, and especially with the internet and with Twitter and with, with Instagram and things like that, that 
you either don't engage at all, which professionally is, is kind of not a great idea or is complicated, or mm -hmm. you have to understand that everyone is going to engage with it. And especially in a situation as fraught as a war, in which both parties to it are extremely online, uh, you have to be aware that everything can kind of be taken one way or another. I think I was not as aware of this um, because we... That, that parade, it was the year that gay marriage was legalized and that we got I marriage. So. It was the year we got marriage equality in New York. Which it was, was like probably two days 2012 or yeah, something. Yeah, because it was right. like two days after that. Because I remember it was just a huge party. Right. I also remember um, that they put us between, they put the Armenians in between the Israeli gay and lesbian society and the Palestinian gay and lesbian society. <laughs> yeah, and we, that's true. Remember, and we literally had to break up a fight. We did break up a fight that year. so Armenian. Yeah, it was really, it was sort of like, it was like they both seemed to get along with us, but yes. somehow we had to negotiate between yes. both of them. Right. I know, it was very funny. Um, I mean, it was sad, but it was yes. funny just sort of like, here we're sitting in this situation going, wow, okay, this mm -hmm. is what we have to do. And I think I was relatively, uh, 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 you know, I was relatively savvy about social media, but not, I, I, I don't think it had taken on, it, it had not become the monster that it is now. Mm -hmm. And so I think I was not as aware of, of how that could be. But, you know, at the end of the day, if Azerbaijanis are seeing happy, proud, activist, LGBTQ Armenians, okay. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like, Cool. Everyone in the picture is really happy. They're really passionate. They're having a good time. They're like fighting for their rights. That's rad. You do what you do. Right. Exactly. Um, so on that note, Scout, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your experience. I know it was a very harrowing month and very difficult. And the people will be able to see your images on the mm -hmm. site as part of this special Artsakh issue. And they can take a look at the work. And I hope they'll check out your books. We, yes, we can. And there is only the earth. There's a picture of Harag in the book. That's right. This is the one we're talking about, mm -hmm. actually. Um, in the there is only the earth, which is when you came and documented the parade uh, post-marriage equality. So um, though we have known each other before. That. We have, so, yeah. <laughs> so that was, a, that was a funny coincidence. But I think it inevitably happens in even a big city like New York. Exactly. We sort of find each other. So thank you so much, Scout. Thank you for having me. This has been great. I apologize for any inarticulateness. <laughs> no uh, need. This is no what happens need. when you ask photographers to talk. <laughs> I love it. Thanks so much. All right. Scout. Thank you so much. The music for this episode is by Mary Kuyumjan. The piece is titled this Should Feel Like Home, which was a commission by Carnegie Hall for Hotel Elephant in 2013. I wanted to read a little bit of her statement about what inspired her to write this piece. In her words, the idea of returning to my ancestral homeland had been ingrained in me since childhood. So when I took my first trip to Armenia in 2012, my expectations were extraordinary. My homecoming experience was everything I was told it would be. Emotional strengthening, a feel of immense connection to the beautiful land and the generously warm people. It was also sobering, harshly exposing the current economic state of Armenia's citizen, the younger generation's mass migration to escape extreme poverty and limited opportunity, political corruption, and the lingering remains of the Soviet influence on a nation that only recently gained independence. I gazed upon Mount Ararat, an adopted symbol of the country now behind Turkish borders, 
and felt the weight of the Armenian Genocide on this small country, now almost a hundred years later. Thank you to Mary Kuyumjan for allowing us to use this beautiful piece of music. My name is Harag Bartanyan, and I'm the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. I hope you can check out the rest of the Sunday edition on Artsakh on the website, hyperallergic.com. Thanks for listening, and stay safe.